Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On this week's pod, hey, it's time to pop that bottle of champagne you've been saving. We finally have data that is positive and has generated a positive stock bump. Thank you, Encarta. The legacy of Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, who passed away last week. And scenes from Shanghai. How are our colleagues in Shanghai faring as they endure an extended lockdown due to COVID? We'll also discuss the takeaways from the latest BioCentury show. The guest was JP Morgan's Mike Gato. But first, this episode of BioCentury This Week is brought to you by Kendall Square Orchestra's Symphony for Science. The Kendall Square Orchestra is helping improve STEM literacy and education for girls and gender expansive youth with a night of music and storytelling at Symphony Hall on May 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Symphony for Science will benefit the Science Club for Girls, which highlights the critical importance of mentorship and access to STEM education for individuals from underrepresented communities. The program will be emceed by Boston's beloved radio voice, Candy O'Terry, and along with the brilliant music, there will be talks by leading female scientists, researchers, and biotech executives. Tickets are on sale now at bso.org slash events slash symphony dash four dash science. Lauren, you've written about Encarta. They are a rare example these days of positive data driving a big stock move. What's so special about these data? I, I think what differentiates this is that these are some of the first proof of concept data for an entire therapeutic modality. And this is a modality that has a, a lot of potential. So Encarta is developing CAR and K cell therapies. Last year, Fate Therapeutics, uh, which has sort of been one of the pioneers in the NK cell, cell therapy field, um, in the engineered NK cell therapy field, uh, started a lot of buzz with some positive data. And going into this year, NK cells were something that investors that I spoke with for some of our preview stories were feeling very optimistic about. So here you have a company that had one of the huge preclinical IPOs two years ago, making good on its promise. And you also have a second example of a CAR NK cell therapy working as we hoped it would. It's not only just prove concept for the technology, but actually the particular cancer that it's working in, there, there's a great deal of need there, right? AML, there hasn't been much success. Right. So Encarta presented data from its first two programs. One of them was targeting an NK cell ligand, NKG2D, on AML. And that's an indication where we don't have any CAR T cell therapies. It's been a challenge finding an antigen that is selective enough for, for a CAR T cell therapy. So that's a high unmet need. And then for the second program, it was um, a CD19 targeted CAR NK cell, and, and there's been a ton of activity with this target. But these data look very comparable to the marketed 
CAR T cells and to the data that FATE has, has generated against the same target. And there's an advantage to the NK cells relative to the CAR Ts. Um, actually, there are several. First of all, these, these cells are easier to make allogeneic. So off the shelf, you have to make fewer modifications to do that. And, and the ones in the trial were off the shelf. And there's also a safety advantage. You don't have the same kind of inflammatory adverse events that you have with CAR T cell therapies. They didn't see any cases of cytokine release syndrome, neurotoxicity, and um, they didn't see graft-versus-host disease, which is an allo issue. All right. Well, that stock move is significant. The stock is up over 100% at the moment. And wow, they were at a 52-week low on Friday. Even with the gain today, they're still far below Encarta's 52-week high of $40, $40 or so. And that was reached in August 2021, but they're certainly going in the right direction. And for those of you keeping score at home, Encarta is one of the preclinical IPOs to list in recent years. There's been some controversy, uh, a lot of discussions about whether uh, we're seeing too many preclinical companies go public. At least, hey, they're bringing the goods here today. All right, let's turn to Washington. Orrin Hatch passed away last week at age 88. First elected in 1976, Hatch did more to shape the legal and regulatory landscape for drug development than any other serving member of Congress. During his tenure as the senator from Utah, he was the biopharma industry's most reliable ally. Steve, you've written a lot about legislation that Hatch got over the goal line. What's his legacy? So one of the most consequential laws, of course, that, that he was involved with, the law that codified what I call the social contract that underlies the pharmaceutical industry, has come to be known as the Hatch-Waxman Act. And I think it's actually really fitting that it's called that, that his name is coupled with Henry Waxman's, because if you think about it, Hatch, he was a teetotaling, anti-abortion, conservative who damned much of the democratic agenda as socialism. And when he said socialism, it was not a compliment. But he's permanently coupled now with Henry Waxman, who is really the epitome of a Hollywood liberal. Literally, he was from Hollywood. So Hatch's collaboration with, with Waxman wasn't an aberration. His ability to find common ground and to forge personal relationships with political opponents, most famously with the former Senator Ted Kennedy, was key to enactment of, of a lot of legislation that defines modern drug development. In addition to the Hatch-Waxman Act, there's the Orphan Drug Act, there are laws that created accelerated approval, vaccine liability protection, uh, breakthrough drugs, the legal framework for dietary supplements, uh, modern nutrition labeling, and a lot of other things that are really important to public health that are outside of the scope of FDA law. He sold the Children's Health Insurance Program chip to his Republican colleagues. That's helped millions of children. He also persuaded his Republican colleagues to reauthorize the Ryan White Care Act, a law that provides uninsured Americans with access to AIDS treatments. He played a big role in getting legislation that matches organ donors with patients efficiently through. There, there are a lot of other things. And in all of them, they came out of this kind of messy process of finding an overlap between liberals and conservatives. I think that in, in many cases, 
you know, what came out was uh, a compromise defined as something that didn't fully satisfy anyone, but you could argue that the public health uh, benefited from it. The other thing about Hatch is you can see how what he did was really, uh, it was maybe the norm when he started out, but by the time he left Congress, it was already exceptional. And I think now it's just disappeared, this idea of reaching across the aisle to find consensus. In his last decade, he was attacked by fellow Republicans who viewed his work with, with Democrats as, uh, as treason. He was attacked by Republicans who believed that his strong support, for example, for gun rights didn't go far enough because he opposed legislation that would give people the right to carry concealed weapons in churches and temples and synagogues. And so the NRA and its, its adherents went after him and said that he was a liberal compared to where they were. So, so I think that he accomplished a great deal by figuring out how to forge these alliances across the aisle. And, and I think that that's something that the world would be a lot better off if we could figure out a way to get back to. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, Steve. I'm curious, though, has, has anyone assumed the mantle? Like, who, who are the gatekeepers now on healthcare legislation? Who is making a difference in the halls of Congress? There's nobody who's taken up FDA issues in the way that Orrin Hatch did or Ted Kennedy or Henry Waxman. The closest I think that we can come to that is the partnership that's been forged between Diana DeGette and Fred Upton, which led to the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, is likely to lead to the passage of the 21st Century Cures 2.0 Act. And uh, tellingly, Fred Upton, the Republican part of that duo, announced that he's not running for re-election, I think in large part because there isn't really room in the Republican Party for members who are willing to reach across the aisle like he has been. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Let's turn to Shanghai now. You spoke with Fiona Yu. She is a venture capitalist who is in lockdown in Shanghai. You also spoke with China watcher Brad Longcar. What is happening in Shanghai right now, Steve? How are biotechs coping with this extended lockdown? Well, Jeff, I, I think that there's two things. There's how are biotech companies doing? And then how are the people who work for the biotech companies doing? So to answer the second question, I spoke with Fiona Yu. She's a partner at a venture capital firm in Shanghai. She's been locked down in an apartment with her husband, a two-year-old boy and a five-year-old boy for more than three weeks, very minimal opportunities to even get outside to stretch their legs. She seemed to be doing fine, certainly way better than I would be doing under those circumstances. But obviously, it affects people's ability to, to work. As far as companies, I reported on a survey that uh, Citigroup did of companies in Shanghai, of biopharma companies. It looked at companies that have received and those who haven't received a placement on a whitelist in Shanghai that allows companies to resume their activities. And most of the, the kind of the marquee names, the companies that people outside of China would recognize, Wuxi Aptec, Wuxi Biologics, the big uh, multinational companies that are operating in Shanghai, Abbott, Boeinger, J&J, Roche, Shanghai Junqi Biosciences, other ones. 
uh, are on the whitelist, that means that they can function. But the way that they have to function is by creating a kind of COVID bubble. The employees have to go to their factories or to their labs and work there and live there until the restrictions are relaxed. That's a pretty extreme circumstance, I think, if you think about it. There are executives there who told me and who told people who I spoke with that these restrictions just don't work for them and their companies, even if they're on the whitelist, aren't going to be able to to go back to work. The interesting thing also is that people in China usually keep criticisms of the government, criticisms of uh, their circumstances to themselves. And things have gotten to such a point in Shanghai that it's boiling over. There have been public demonstrations in the streets. There are people talking about it on social media. There are people talking about it to foreign reporters. It's a really difficult situation in large measure because nobody knows when it's going to end and nobody knows if a similar circumstance is going to happen in another Chinese city because there aren't policies in place, or at least they haven't been announced in China, that will create an off-ramp for their zero COVID policy. There isn't a massive campaign, for example, to vaccinate people with boosters with effective mRNA vaccines that would give people some confidence that that things are going to be different going forward. And there isn't any evidence that the government's willing to take the position that governments in other countries have taken, uh, where they're willing to allow a certain amount of COVID in their, in their communities as a, a price for functioning normally. So it's really hard to see where it's going. And you, and you said this in your piece, but to be clear, Fiona, you was not complaining. Mostly she was giving you a picture of her day-to-day, and she also described how she is helping her portfolio companies navigate the current situation. Yeah, and the situation's really coming on top of what's been really rough for Chinese life sciences companies, a very difficult investment climate. Stocks have been taking the same pattern in China as they have in the United States and Europe. Uh, Biotech stocks have been down for some time. It's difficult now to raise venture capital. She said that there are companies now she's advising them to accept terms for deals that she would have advised them to reject just a few months ago because there's a need to get cash. She's also advising companies to uh, take whatever steps they can to conserve cash flow and um, to ride out what's a, a, a difficult situation that's made even more difficult by COVID and the public health restrictions on, on people's lives. Yeah, speaking to the stress that the Chinese biopharma sector was already under ahead of these lockdowns, one indicator that we at BioCentury track closely, the Longcar China Biopharma ETF, which trades on NASDAQ as CHNA. Through Friday, that was down 47% in the past six months. Um, I know you spoke with Brad. What did he have to say, Steve? One of the things that Brad said is that the China biotech ecosystem has been in flux for some time because people have been concerned about low pricing and that this year's NRDL list announced in December was so low and the negotiations with the government were so intense that it changed what in the past has been a potential risk into a real one, into a real threat, and has made made the situation more difficult than it's been in the past. 
And it's also made it much more urgent for companies in China to go after global markets. He said that a lot of the companies that in the past have been talking about someday going global are now saying that, um, that this is something that they're pivoting to as quickly as they can. It's really become urgent. All right. Well, it's, it's far from just China biotechs navigating a tough market. Last week on our new The BioCentury show, Mike Gato, head of Global Life Sciences Investment Banking at J.P. Morgan, joined The BioCentury show to deliver a lot of insights on the state of the industry. And he gave a lot of guidance to biotech C-suite members who may be going through their first severe downturn. Mike pointed out that the biotech industry, since he got involved with it nearly three decades ago, has evolved to a place where everyone out there, all these companies out there, want to do everything on their own. And the current downturn, he said, serves as a reminder that biotech may have to return to being an industry with lower burn rates and a greater reliance on external partners. He points out that industry has gotten a little bit away from where it grew up, which was a lot of risk sharing, a lot of partnering with other biopharmas. And he pointed out that not only do such deals help companies reduce their need for capital, they also provide a way for smaller companies to tap into resources that bigger companies are just in a better position to deliver. Jeff, what did he say about the current state of M&A in the industry? Yeah, good, good question. He uh, spoke uh, a lot about that. And the main takeaway was that pharma can move the needle quite a bit if they do the right M&A. Pharma, he pointed out, is under pressure from a looming patent cliff. And he says that a lot of pharma's success and growth over time has been built off of external innovation. And what did he have to say about preclinical IPOs? I know that some people are blaming those for sort of the downturn in the biotech sector. True. Uh, yeah, there's been some raging debates on bio Twitter about this. And he, he kind of did a little bit of a history lesson. He was like, back in the day, you really had to demonstrate that you were. IPO worthy, you had to have human proof of concept data. That was the bar back in the day. That was the, the bar for investors. And he points out that in the last five or so years, you know, it's sort of during which time we've seen like the rise of crossover investors, big hedge funds and the like going in on uh, a private company's last private round and, and going into the IPO and beyond. That has really changed this environment. Companies now obviously are getting out with less tested technologies. And as Mike pointed out, failures now are happening in the public eye. Uh, so a lot more eyeballs on blowups, uh, trial failures, and that comes with its own problems. And it's contributed to small cap indices sliding much more than mid and large cap. He didn't say that these are a bad thing, but it does come with its consequences. All right, BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe conference is right around the corner. We are returning to in-person networking for the first time in three years. 
And what better place to do it than Milan? Uh, it will be in mid-May, and due to record demand, our organizers have introduced a waiting list for the remaining all-access passes to attend in person. If you want to attend in person, we encourage you to visit bioequityeurope.com and join the wait list. And you can also see options for a digital-only pass to the conference. All of the information you need, as I just said, is at bioequityeurope.com. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education, such as the upcoming Symphony for Science.